we've had the good fortune to spend a day in Dhamma practice. Though it might have been very challenging, still it's helpful to remember that uh, we have a great good fortune to encounter wisdom teachings, teachings of the Buddha, the great saints and sages. That encourages not to take this human circumstance for granted, but to Reflect on what is skillful, what leads to peace, what leads to well-being, what leads to conflict. We've had the good fortune to uh, honor the, uh, spend a day honoring the life and teachings of Ajahn Chah. great meditation master that uh, inspired uh, Tanissa and myself, and certainly the old Western forest, Thai forest Sangha through Ajahn Sumato. I remember The first time that I uh, met Ajahn Chah, back in uh, October 1976, already the word enlightenment had uh, stunned me or really caught me, caught my attention. I had, uh, I was, this is before I met Ajahn Chah, but I, had, uh, I was uh, 24 years old and had been so externally motivated, externally focused on well-being, or the promise of well-being through success. I had uh, kept working in my life. I'd been a wrestling champion. I was a five-time Mid-South wrestling champion. Uh, I finally won this national tournament, national prep school tournament that we went up to from Tennessee. We went up to Pennsylvania for it. I worked in academics, and gone through Princeton, done really well, and ended up uh, winning a Rhodes Scholarship and really 
believing, working hard in, in good ways, that that would that I would arrive in well-being, success. And at some point, I started to feel so weary, exhausted. I would love just pausing. I even liked uh, sitting in churches when nobody was there. Sometimes the sermons would drive me nutty. I grew up in a place where there was so much fundamentalism where people were wagging their fingers telling you you're going to hell if you didn't do it this way. So I wasn't big on sermons. Ironic now, I give sermons. But, uh, but I loved just sitting in the space. And, the, and I'd encountered sometime when I was about, I guess, about 22, I'd first encountered the word enlightenment. And just something about that word that implied there was something, a potentiality within us. I started sensing that I was looking in the wrong place. I couldn't really articulate it. But I sensed that there was this interior world I'd been neglecting, being so focused on championships and grades and things. So this word possibility of, I didn't know what it could mean, but understanding. So in this state, when I was at Oxford, 24 years old, and yet feeling so weary, when I heard about this, uh, I heard a really confident guy who was just traveling through Oxford, lower his voice and talk with such reverence about this meditation master in a forest in Northeast Thailand. Just that reverence of someone who was actually quite cocky, very accomplished, but that quality of reverence person told me, they said, no, no, this, they had checked out the different meditation monasteries all over Thailand and that this particular master was different. He was, they used the word, he was enlightened as far as Doug was concerned, that's Doug Burns, Dr. Doug Burns, Douglas Burns. And he says he has a a small group of Westerners with him. And the senior one's been there 10 years and he's really wise. And if he's not enlightened, he's pretty close. That guy's named Sumato. And something just changed right then. I thought, I've got to go. So literally within a matter of weeks, I had a leave of absence from Oxford University. It written my parents long letter, talked to them, they were devastated, but I had a, I was heading out to meet the enlightened master. There were some complications because I happened to arrive on the day of a 
revolution in Thailand, which is another story. And basically, it was the worst day in modern Thai history. There was a really bad scene. Usually, Thai revolutions are no shots fired. It's all very Polite. This wasn't like that. And the authorities were thinking I should go back. And But somehow this Doug Burns met me there. And we just, he said, let's just lay low for a while. Things calm down. And he then took me up on the long train ride, overnight train ride up to the northeast where Ajahn Chah's monastery was. And so I didn't have much experience with meditation, but in a way, I, I'd done a whole 10-day retreat, and I guess I did think that was pretty good. And I'd had a taste, a delicious, though my mind was crazy. The first three days was just hell, but I got this taste of peacefulness that was so exquisite that I thought that must be a sign of something or other. And so I was wondering what Ajahn Chah would be like, but I was basically hoping that, like I'd read some stories, that he would, one, recognize my potential. That would be nice. See that I had great meditative potential. And maybe help me along a little bit. A little tap on the head would be nice. Blinding light. And then all these problems going away. Uh, that would be nice. Anyway, uh, Douglas uh, took me on the train ride, and we went up, arrived early in the morning, and uh, then made our way to Ajahn Chah's monastery. And uh, Ajahn Chah was uh, sitting in his, uh, under his hut, it was on stilts, and he was receiving guests, and the hut was on stilts, and he would receive people in the open-aired space beneath his hut, where he had a wicker chair. He would sit on the wicker chair, and we would all sit on the floor in the shade. And uh, Douglas introduced me. Douglas could speak Thai. And he lived in Thailand for quite a number of years. And he, could, he introduced me and uh, said I was interested in meditation. So Ajahn Chah uh, first asked me why I had come, I can't remember what I said, I probably muttered something about enlightenment or balance or peace or something, I don't remember exactly what I said. And then, and then Ajahn Chah asked me if I knew how to meditate. And I said, well, I had, 
I have had some experience with meditation. I had just finished this 10-day retreat and I thought maybe he could see that because this retreat, they were working with uh, body sensations sweeping through the body. And I was quite proud of myself that I not only could sweep through the body, but I could sweep simultaneously both sides of the body at the same time. And so I was sort of a little proud of my... Uh, and I thought my athletic past had helped because I was used to being with the body and in a way quite equanimous to different sensations. So I was explaining what I was doing. And uh, Ajahn Chah listened for a while. And then he got off his wicker chair and got down on the floor like a dog and started sniffing around all over the place. Sniffing here, sniffing there, sniffing around, and then saying a few things. And then everybody was laughing who could understand Thai, but me, because I couldn't understand. He's sniffing all over the place, sniffing here, sniffing there. And um, finally, I think I said, uh, Douglas, could I have a translation, please? I mean, my intuitive powers could tell that he wasn't impressed with my meditation. <laughs> that was something that I could tell. But uh, anyway, finally, um, Douglas said, well, Ajahn Chah got back on his seat, smiling. And Douglas said, well, Ajahn Chah says, you're sniffing all over the place. And uh, that actually, if you know one thing really well, you know one thing really well, you'll understand everything. He said, why don't you learn how to be with the breath? Just point it to his nose, be with the breath. And he said, let Sumedha teach you how to be a monk. There was something very, though, he had, people were laughing. In a way, it was, uh, I was quite touched. I mean, I, he got my attention. And I did just that. I let Sumedho teach me how to be a monk. But also before, sometime during that conversation, he also said, but uh, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, oh, well, I will, I'll you know, do this, and then I'll... I don't know if I actually said get enlightened, but that's what I was thinking, get enlightened and then go to medical school. And then, then he said, then what will you do? And then I'll, I'll, I don't know, I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll keep going and uh, become a doctor. And, and then he asked me, then what will you do? And I said, well, and then he just lifted up his, his spittoon and he just went round and round and round and round and round, just like that. And I was really exhausted, and something in me did on some level know I was going round and round and round and round and round, thinking I was really getting somewhere. 
So I did just that. I did, I did uh, go let Samedo teach me how to be a monk. I became Ajahn Samedo, became my teacher. And I started working with the breath. And in uh, Ajahn Chah, and I'm really grateful for that. I had been, remember, I had just come from Oxford where I was writing a thesis on art, science, and mysticism in the works of Aldous Huxley. I was trying to solve the universe, science, and bring that together with the creative process and the mystical process. And I was thinking all kinds of stuff about how it all went together. And those are all wonderful questions. But I was trying to go to the big. Ajahn Chah said, no, no, go to the little. Just take one simple thing. The breath arises and ceases. When we're really with the breath, we can steady, steady, steady the mind so that we can actually notice that it's not just the breath or my breath. which just sounds like a noun. It's, it's this process, dynamic process, that swells and contracts. He's long and short. He's rough and smooth. It's becoming otherwise all the time. And that opportunity to, to really get to know change get to know this becoming otherwise tendency, which the Buddha called anicca. Nicca means permanent. Anicca means it's not that. It's not trying to convince yourself everything's changing as some other idea that would convince yourself. This, this contemplation is to help us sweep away all these assumptions we make about things including ourselves and others that we then claim and reject. The contemplation of anicca, it's not permanent, it's changing. Very profound. But rather than as a theory, Ajahn Chah, and, the, and he was transmitting what the Buddha taught, was encouraging us to actually see this for ourselves, witness this for ourselves in something very close, very intimate with us, our own body, that's actually solid enough and steady enough that it's, it's, it's easier to find. That's why the first foundation in mindfulness was the body. Thought is so much more elusive. Perception, so elusive. Feeling, very elusive. Powerful, and we get tangled up in them. But the first foundation is bodied precisely because it is, it is more, its changes are slower. And that can be an anchor for us to stabilize the instrument of awakening. When we don't stabilize and sharpen and brighten the instrument of awakening, which is consciousness, awareness, then it becomes the instrument of a massive delusion becomes a weapon of mass destruction. A deluded mind is a weapon of mass destruction.
in the coming days we'll be looking at the at the uh, the wisdom teachings more deeply of of the Buddha, where he was uh, sharing what led to his awakening, what's called the the realization and practice of the Four Noble Truths. But when he'd given that first sermon, that first discourse to his five uh, former fellow ascetics who had abandoned him, when they thought he'd gone soft, when he accepted the milk rice from Sujata, when he realized he needed to get stronger to, to, to practice this samadhi, this stabilizing, refreshing the body-mind, strengthening the body-mind so that he then could turn that mind to see into the nature of things. His five uh, friends had, had uh, abandoned him. After the Buddha was awakening, he, he, the first people he thought of teaching, who were, he thought of his previous teachers, but they had already died. So then he thought, well, I can, I can share this with my former friends, with my friends who abandoned me. He, he walked in stages from the tree of awakening, from the Bodhi tree to the deer park outside of Benares, and that's where he gave that uh, discourse on the Four Noble Truths, which we'll look at later. But anyway, at the end of the discourse, he, one of the disciples had a breakthrough. One of the disciples, and the Buddha saw that, and he said, Kandanyo knows. It's one of the disciples' names, Kandanyo. Kandanyo knows. His eye of Dhamma opened. He had seen the Dhamma. Remember Ajahn Chah is talking about first you learn, then you understand, then you practice, then one sees the Dharma. Still wasn't ha- one hasn't become the Dharma. But Kandanyo saw the Dharma, his Dharma eye opened, he tasted Nibbana, he touched Nibbana. And when the, and the Buddhist and you know how he described what Kandanya knew? He said, Kandanya knows that all that arises ceases. Whatever arises, ceases. Now, on a multiple choice test, maybe we all could get that right. You know, if someone to say, well, do things change? We could say yes. But to really, really take that into our being, it's just this very principle. All the profound teachings of the Buddha, all the emptiness, deathlessness, measurelessness, all these grand and enlightenment, awesome sounding words, unification, come from this simple insight that begins with just seeing one thing, insight of change. The insight into change leads to everything else. When we notice the breath becoming otherwise every instant, every instant, and this breath with its warmth, its fluidity, its vibratory nature, its pulsing, 
That's our rupa, at one aspect of our rupa kanda, the, the, what we take to be me and mine, the form. We then can actually, as we understand that it's always becoming otherwise, we then can check that out with other forms, candles, flowers that wilt, the day that's, that's windy and damp and hot today and cooling now in the evening. Not to mention the, the, that's the tangible aspects of what we take to be mine. And we start looking at feeling, perception, volition, and consciousness. What's the, the that's form, then, we, then we're looking at the mind aspects, what's called nama. Feeling, being pleased, so ephemeral. And yet, how much of the time do we, do we just assume when, when the mind takes something, oh, it's too hot, and we just take that, that perception um, as, as pain. We just take that, don't like that, move away from that. But if we're a contemplator, we have the opportunity to, to, to stay with it. I really practiced today with the heat, really enjoyed being with sensation and noticing it first, uh, I could, it would be painful, disagreeable, but if I just sat with it, reflected on it, I just noticed that a lot of that disagreeability kept being reinforced by perceptions, thoughts too hot. As I stayed with it, it shifted, and then it became just feeling. But when we don't know that, we can, we can f- try to find our happiness by wanting the body to be a certain way, the feelings to be a certain way, our thoughts to be a certain way. And one of the teachings Ajahn Chah gave again and again and again, it's written on our wall, he said, if you're looking for certainty in that which is actually uncertain, you are bound to suffer. If you look for certainty in that which is actually uncertain, you are bound to suffer. What does change mean? It means it's not certain. Again and again, Ajahn Chah would say the expression my na. My in Thai means not. Na means certain. My na. He would say, we should say this all the time when the mind's saying it's too hot. He would train, he said, you should train yourself to say, my nah, not certain. Or if the mind said, oh, it's just right now. And, more, and, and the mind clings to some moment, the sunset's just beautiful. Ah, oh, it's just right. Yes. Ajahn Chah said, you should train yourself to say, my nah. My net just encourages one just to touch lightly and, and to have an opportunity to see that actually what arises ceases. That it, thought tells us it's nah, 
Thought tells us it's certain, it's, it's good. Thought says it's bad. Thought says it's me. Thought says it's mine. Thought says it's right. My nah, it's not certain because it's becoming otherwise. The contemplative, the practitioner keeps checking. When we look for certainty, when the mind thinks it's found something that's certain, it can unconsciously grab it in what's called take birth. That's what happens when we look for certainty in a happy feeling. We grab hold of it and then it becomes me. It's literally called birth because we take it to be certain. So we get elated sometimes with happiness. We then lean on that feeling. We become that feeling. We take birth. Then when that, because it is my nag, because it's not certain, when it changes, there's a sense of stumbling. That's why Ajahn Chah says we're bound to suffer. We're looking for certainty in that which is uncertain. We're looking for certainty in the khandas, what we take to be me and mine, the body, feelings, and whoa, perceptions. Talk about something slippery. certain mind state, perception of understanding, we grab at that mind state. How long can you keep a mind state? So something so simple, we can always come back to the simplicity of a breath, breathing in, breathing out, noticing that it's continually shifting, actually relaxing with that change, honoring that change, getting a feeling that there's the in-breath and the out-breath, similar with feeling and perceptions, liking and not liking. Similar with our moods. So when we see that something's changing, because it's changing, the Buddha called it dukkha. Not as a put-down, but it's not reliable. Dukkha means it's not, its nature is to deteriorate. That's just the way it is. That's the way of a condition. It's not a put-down. He's saying because things, if you really see that things are changing, then to imagine we can build our house on something that's changing is, is crazy. It crumbles. Or as the Christ famously said, if we put our treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break in and steal, that's, he said, don't do that because it's, we lose our treasure. It's another way of talking about change. When things change, that's called dukkha. And then when, when something's really changing, we call this my body. We call these my feelings. We might call this our retreat. But as a, a contemplator realizes that that's just a way of talking, 
that actually this body doesn't really belong to us, it belongs to nature. So the suffering, suffering uh, starts to come from wanting things to be what they can't be, trying to find certainty where there's no certainty. So hence Ajahn Chah teaching again and again, mind there and to let go. Allow things to follow their nature. When we allow the body to have its nature, feelings to have its nature, perceptions, volition, consciousness to have its nature, its nature to always become otherwise. It's there and it's gone. Like a bubble. It's there and then it's gone. In a moment, and when Kandanyo saw that what arises ceases, whatever arises ceases, not only the breath, but all the khandas, all the aggregates, in a moment of really deeply seeing that, he let go of demanding conditions to be anything but what they were. For a moment, letting go of grasping them, desperately wanting certainty, home, security, let go for a moment of trying to get rid of something. Imagine that we're going to, by getting rid of something, get to that happy place, peaceful place, easeful place, safe place. In a moment of not grasping, not rejecting, acknowledging what comes, goes. What arises, ceases. In a moment of clear seeing like that, one recognizes the peacefulness, the underlying peacefulness, the pervasive peacefulness. Ajahn Chah would, uh, rather than being excited about, in Thailand people were very excited about if you had visions or if you, if you could uh, tell the future or if you could... A lot of people like to go to monks because they hope to get a lottery number so they could win big on the lottery. So people would oftentimes ask the monks, Hinnimitmai? Meaning, do you see a vision? Do you, have you seen something? Hoping they were the monk would give them some prediction or something. And Ajahn Chah would say, if, they, if anybody asks you that, say yes. And people would get excited. What do you see? What do you see? And Ajahn Chah says, when they ask you what you see, say, I see anicca, dukkha, anatta. I see change. I see suffering. I see not-self. And again and again, he would ask us, Hintukmai, he would say, do you see suffering? In a moment of seeing suffering, we're looking for certainty where there isn't certainty. We're grasping or rejecting something. He would encourage us to stay right there. 
And in a moment of being right there, right where it was hot, right where it was suffering, if in a moment we see that demanding, that clinging, and can let it go, let the condition just be the condition, right where it was hot, Ajahn Chah said, right there, coolness appears. Right right in the midst of samsara, that's right where nibbana is. That's right where the cool is. Letting go. Coming right from us, meeting, meeting this experience, not just imagining some nibbana, speculating about some nibbana, but being able to be with something as simple and ever-present as the breath and know it deeply. It comes and goes. And that that's teaching us what everything is teaching us. Change. Insubstantiality. Uncertainty. And how ironic in embracing uncertainty through surrendering to uncertainty, through relaxing into uncertainty, how ironic that we then land, we wake up to our own home, which is like a sky a vast sky, a measureless space, which is our heart itself. The Buddha said in every single condition, if we go right into the core of the condition, if we're right with whatever it is, whether it's depression, discouragement, excitement, pleasure, whatever it is, if we look at the essence of it, it is vimutti. It is unbounded. Vimutti means free. It's unbounded. It's like the sky. Vimutti sarasabhidama. What leads to that? Panyittarasabhidama. It's wisdom. It's wisdom that overcomes all these delusions. Wisdom, our wisdom to see the changing nature of conditions. As we see the changing nature of conditions, the desire, the imagination that we really can grasp and keep something, we see the frustration of that, see the pain of that, see the futility of that. So then that bua, that weariness, that what the Buddha called viraga starts to come from our wisdom. The dispassion starts to come when we realize we can't ultimately grasp. Wisdom overcomes all dhammas. At the essence of all dhammas is freedom. As we start to then relax, then amatogadasabedhamma, there's the sense of one relaxes into one's heart. There's, remember we talked about the, the unified heart that in a sense everything converges in this heart. All conditions come together in the deathless. This heart which is, conditions are born and dying, but each condition keeps returning. All the myriad conditions, all the myriad differences and changes are all continually returning to this one presence, one mind, one heart the Buddha called the convergence into the deathless.
Ajahn Chah said, if you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you have complete peace. <laughs>